Today is Rosh Chodesh Tislev, and we have, by popular demand, we brought back Rabbi Shmuley Botnik to give us some incredible wisdom and insight into this month, the secrets behind it. Now, last month, we recorded a podcast on this subject as well in Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan. Last month, I didn't have the notes. I was kind of flying blind. But this morning, Rabbi Botnik sent me the outline of this sheer of this lecture, and it's absolutely exquisite. And I think, you know, you set a really high bar for yourself last month. Not only did you meet that, I think you exceeded it greatly. So we're really honored to have you over here on the podcast for the month of Kislev. Thank you so much, Rabbi Botnik. Thank you, Rabbi Wilby. Always a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's uh, let's jump right into it. So, again, you mentioned Cheshvan. I, I seem to recall that we focused on the the zodiac sign of Cheshvan a month ago, and that was the scorpion, right? So we took a deep dive into what the scorpion represents and, and how it relates to the inner meaning of Cheshvan. So I would like to follow a similar model for Kislev. The zodiac sign for Kislev is, we are taught, is the Keshes, the rainbow. All right. Now... We all know about the, the rainbow. It appears in Parshas Noach at the end, and it doesn't ever really reappear. So the question is, what exactly does the Keshes, the rainbow, represent? And how does that relate to Kislev? All right, fair enough. Question number one, I got it. All right, but we're going to add another component to this share, which we didn't do a month ago, and that is we're going to discuss the Shevet, the tribe that corresponds with the month of Kislev. So there are 12 months in the year and there are 12 tribes. And we are taught that each month has its own tribe. So the there are actually different ways of calculating it. You know, the most simple way to calculate it would be uh, in sequential order, meaning Nisan is the first month, so that would be Ruvain, and then Iyar would be Shimon, and so on and so forth. And I think there are those who use that system, but the Arizal uses a different uh, way of calculating it. And based on the Arizal's calculation, the month of Kislev will fall out um, on the Shevet of Binyamin. So it will be Binyamin, the last Shevet, the youngest of the 12 brothers. That is the month of Kislev. And so... In addition to understanding Kislev's connection with the rainbow, we are also going to try to understand Kislev's connection with the with uh, with Binyamin, with the youngest of the twelve sons of Yaakov. So Jacob has twelve sons. Each one corresponds to a month. The month that we're currently beginning right now, Kislev corresponds to Benjamin. What's the connection between this month and Benjamin, and this month and the rainbow? Okay, two questions. Yeah. Now. Before we, we, I have a bunch of other questions too, but before we get to those, it's just to point out an uncanny thing. So we know that Kislev obviously has a very prominent uh, Yom Tov, that's Hanukkah, and Hanukkah is the celebration of our victory against the Greeks, the Yavanim. Now we find that the Yavanim are also associated with the Keshes. So there's actually a few sources for this. I'm going to quote one, and that is the Medrash Rabbah. In this week's parsha, we're currently holding a parsha's Toldos. In this week's parsha, 
we are told that Yitzchak directs his son Esav to go get him, um, to, to go hunt for him, right? And bring him some food. And the the way the Pasuk structures it, it says, Sana Kelecha, um, you should get your Kelim, Telyecha, what does Telyecha mean exactly? Also some sort of weapon. And Kashtecha, and your bow. And the Medrash makes a drasha on each one of these, uh, on the, each one of these words, they say Kelecha is referring to Bavel, which is the four, the first of the four exiles. Then Telyecha is Madai, the second of the four exiles. And Kashtecha, your bow, is Yavon, the third of the four exiles. So here you have it, that the Keshes is correlated to Yavon. Now, granted, the Keshes here and the Keshes we're referring to earlier are different because the Keshes, that's the, the zodiac sign of, of Kislev, is the rainbow, and this is referring to the bow and arrow, like a, like the weapon. Um, but it's clear that, that they're connected with each other, like every time you find a similarity in Hebrew words, they're always connected. So we're already starting to see that there's some depth going on here. On the one hand, Keshes symbolizes Kislev. On the other hand, it symbolizes Yavon. And we know that Yavon obviously plays a very big role in the story of Kislev. So I'm just pointing that out. Is that So is the that word Keshes is a homonym. It's a word that has two different meanings. It means a rainbow and a bow and arrow. So we're using them interchangeably. And they correspond to the month of Kislev, which is the month in which the Hanukkah story happened when we triumphed over the Greeks. And the Greeks, too, in the story of, of Isaac telling Esau to go capture some game, he lays out some of the weapons. And the Midrash tells us that those weapons correspond to the various different arch foes that our people have faced. And the word Keshes, which means both rainbow and bow and arrow... And that's the weapon that he's telling Asaf to take. That corresponds to Yavon, to the Greeks, i.e. the nation that we triumphed over on Hanukkah. Um, that is correct. Now, another thing I want to focus on is every month has its own permutation of Hashem's four-letter name. So Hashem's four-letter name, which, which we do not pronounce, is yod Hey vav Hey. But you can rearrange that into 12 different ways. So it could be Vav Yod Hey Hey, Yod Vav Hey Hey, Hey Hey Yod Vav, so on and so forth. And each one of the 12 months has its own. And the, the formula that form, that formulates the four-letter word for that month is kind of the the spiritual energy of that month. Th- does that make sense? I know that sounds confusing. Yeah, so we have four letters that are the letters that make up the name of Hashem, the name of God that we don't pronounce, and the ineffable name of God. And those four letters can be arranged in 12 different ways. Take those four letters and arrange them in 12 different ways. And each one of those 12 words are also a version of this word, the name of God. And every month has its own formulation, own layout of these four letters to make the name of God. Is that right? That's right. And it's very clearly uh, outlined for us which formula will correlate with which month. So for the month, month of Kislev, it will be Vav Yod Hey Hey. Okay, Vav Yod Hey Hey, that's our month. And 
And says the Arizal, it comes from a specific Pasuk. This Vav Yod Hei Hei will appear in a Pasuk all the way at the end of Chumash Bereshis, where it says when the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Yaakov are burying their father, they're, they're bringing their father to burial, right? Remember, Yaakov died in Mitzrayim, and so they carried him all the way to the Ma'ara Samach Pehelah in Hebron. And they're about to bury him. And it says, Varyar Yoshev Ha'aretz HaKnani, that the, those who dwelled in Eretz Knan, they observed what was going on. And the result says, that's where you see a hint to the, the name of God that will correlate to the month of Kislev, because the first letter of each word, Varyar Yoshev Ha'aretz HaKnani, is, it spells out Vav Yod Hey Hey, which again, that is the combination that is connected with the month of Kislev. So super cryptic stuff going on here. Somehow in the burial of Yaakov lies the secret of the month of Kislev. All right. Does that so sound the, cool? The Do you have end any of Genesis tells us the story of the burial of Jacob. He dies in Egypt. They transfer him after some time to the land of Canaan. And it's a very long procession. And Joseph has to lobby Pharaoh to allow him to leave. And then it says a verse, Vayar Yoshev Ha'aretz HaKanani, and they saw those who dwelled in the Canaanite lands, and the first letter of each of those four successive words, spell out the Vav, and then the Yud, and then the Hey Hey, which those are, that's the combination of the ineffable name of God that corresponds to our month. Somehow our month relates to the burial of Jacob at the end of, of Genesis. That's right. Now, the Sefer Bnei Saschar uh, offers a very, a very beautiful insight into what that connection might be. Uh, he points out, this is mathematical, he says that there is this tradition that Yaakov passed away on Sukkot. That tradition is based on the, the Lushan of a Pasuk. It says, in, uh, I think it's in Vayishlach, it says, V'yakov nasa Sukosa, which means that Yaakov traveled to Sukkot. Over there it's referring to a city by the name of Sukkot. But there's a tradition that means, it's alluding to the fact that Yaakov actually passed away on Sukkos. Now, the verse tells us in the end of Genesis that it took 70 days to travel from Mitzrayim all the way to Hebron, all the way to bury Yaakov. So, if you count 70 days from Sukkos till, you just count 70 days, you're going to land on Hanukkah, right? In other words, if you start on the 15th day of Tishrei, that's Sukkot, and you count 70, you're going to, you're going to land on the 25th day of Kislev, which is obviously the first day of Hanukkah. So, very fascinating. We find that, according to this calculation, Yaakov was being buried on the first day of Hanukkah, hence we find an allusion to the month of Kislev in his burial. Beautiful. So, it is beautiful. Uh, but it doesn't give us a why. I mean, it gives us a what, like, oh, that's the connection. But why? In other words, we still have to understand why is it that in the burial of Yaakov, there's some sort of connection to Hanukkah. Meaning, obviously, it was divinely orchestrated that Yaakov should be buried on Hanukkah. Why? Why is that? Now, another thing that I noticed is that I found another instance where, where you'll find this exact same formula of the Shem Havaya, this Vav Yod Hei Hei. And it's the first four letters of last week's Parsha. So last week we read Parsha's Chayesara. And the Parsha starts off with the words Vayiyu Chayesara Mea. 
And it hit me that the last four letters of those four words is Vav Yud Hey Hey. Now, the reason why that struck me as being interesting is because we also blessed the new month last week, right? We made the uh, the Birchas Rosh Chodesh, we said the Yehi Ratzon, ushering in the month of Kislev. And I thought about it, and I think, I don't know for sure, but I think it will it will turn out that way probably every single year, that the the, the Parsha of Chayesara will be the week uh, right, directly prior to, uh, to, to Kislev. So here we have it that the Shabbos preceding Kislev begins with the same four-letter formula that is connected to Kislev. And that's just, that's just really cool. I thought about it a little more, and I realized it's even cooler, because one of the main functions of the Parsha, the main subjects of Parsha Chaisar, is all about buying, Avraham Avinu buying the Mar Sanach and then subsequently burying Sarah there. So again, we're finding that this four-letter combination of Hashem's name, which is connected to Kislev, also seems to be inextricably connected to the Ma'ar Sanach the tomb in which the patriarchs are buried. Um, okay, so that, that's kind of all just my own projection. I might be totally off here. But one thing's for sure is that at the end of, of Vayechi, that's what the Arizal is telling us, is that the name appears, the name of Kislev appears in the burial of Yaakov, and I believe that it appears in the burial of Sarah as well. So we have a reinforcement of this idea that somehow the, the name of God that corresponds to Kislev, which corresponds to Hanukkah, it relates both to the burial of Jacob in this same cave of the patriarchs, and the burial of Sarah, who was buried in the same location in the cave of the patriarchs and the matriarchs in Hebron. That's right. Okay, so, so far we have the zodiac sign, is the Keshes, we have the tribe, that's Binyamin, and we have the four-letter formula, and that is Vav Yud Hey Hey, somehow connected to Hebron. And we're going to have to try and decipher all of this. Before we get to that, I just want to make three short points, just three, three more questions, and that is as follows. Um, we find in the Arizal, I wish I could have... Um, found you the exact, exact uh, chapter and verse. I didn't have time for that, but I've definitely seen it quoted many times. Uh, and that is that he says that something very mystical. He says, when the angel of Esau fought with Yaakov, right? That's all the way in Parshas Vayishlach. It's coming up. So there's this epic battle between the the evil angel of Esau uh, against Yaakov. Yaakov is ultimately victorious. But the angel of Esau does manage to cause some harm by hitting Yaakov in the thigh. What's it called, everybody? The sciatic nerve? The sciatic nerve, yes. Yeah. And because of that, we are uh, prohibited from eating the sciatic nerve of an animal, right? Uh, that's called the, the Gid Hanasha. So Yaakov is hurt. Yaakov is, he is, he's injured by the angel of Esau. And the Rizal teaches us something very mystical. He says this injury isn't just physical, it's spiritual as well. There's some sort of spiritual deficiency resulting from, uh, from that blow. He says that Hanukkah comes along and Han- Hanukkah fixes it. Hanukkah serves as a tikkun for the harm done by Esau back, in, back during that, that fight, that battle. All right, now... It, it's super mystical. There's a lot written up about this, and as part of 
our share today is part of the ideas I would like to share, I think we could come to some sort of understanding. Now, another thing that I found, uh, and this was in the Sefer Imri Noam, is that Hanukkah also serves as a spiritual uh, atonement or, or a tikkun of sorts to a, a different uh, a spiritual disaster, so to speak, and that was the, the selling of Yosef. So the selling of Yosef is one of the most complex stories in all of the Torah. The, the brothers, ten, really ten out of the twelve sons of Yaakov, are involved in the are involved in the selling of Yosef down to Mitzrayim, uh, and that obviously results in, in a lot of very difficult and, and challenging episodes. There's the whole, they have to go down there, and, and Yosef is the king, and then he schleps Binyamin, and then Yaakov comes down, and ultimately the Golis Mitzrayim results from that. And somehow Hanukkah serves as a tikkun for what went wrong there. Rabbi Wolby, any comments? Yes, yeah, so we're, we see a lot of different elements here that are coalescing around Hanukkah and around the month that we're currently in. It relates somehow to what happened with Jacob and Esav, and Esav's angel, and they had the whole struggle overnight, and he struck him in his thigh, in the sciatic nerve, and the damage, the spiritual damage that was brought about by that is somehow remedied, is rectified on Hanukkah. And in so addition, the... Yeah episode of the sale of Joseph, somehow that too is mended and rectified by Hanukkah. Correct. Now, one last thing before we jump into the answer part of all this, and that is that we find uh, in the story of Hanukkah a particular emphasis on the Heichel. The Heichel is not the innermost, but because the innermost part of the Beis Mekdash is the Kodesh HaKadoshim, but right before that is the Heichel. And is that the sanctuary they call it the sanctuary? Yeah, yeah, that would be the sanctuary where the menorah is, is there and the Mizbeach is there and the Shulchan is there. And we find it specifically the Heichel that the Yavanim attack. They enter the Heichel, they, uh, they violate all of the oil there and that's really the whole story because they weren't able to find any pure oil and it took them eight days to get it and, and that's why they had that eight-day miracle. But what is it about the Heichel, that, what is it specifically about the Heichel that the Yavanim do not like? Like, why couldn't they attack some other part of the base of Mikdash? Uh, so I think we'll be able to address that as well. So those are our questions. Um, I didn't count them, but there's probably about like five or six of them. We have the uh, tribe, uh, the like tribe of Benjamin. I'll go through them. I have them written down here. The tribe of Benjamin, and somehow that relates to this month. The rainbow is this month, and that's also the force, so to speak, of the Yavanim of the Greeks. It's also this month. We have the uh, burial place of both Jacob and, and Sarah. It's in the, it's, it's ha- either happens in this month, and it is featured, the name of God is featured in, in that context. The name of God corresponding to this month is featured in that context. We have the sciatic nerve, the sale of Joseph, and the particular area of the temple called the Heichal, the sanctuary. All those are related to this month, and of course, to Hanukkah, and it's a whole big mystery. Please resolve it for us, Rabbi Botnik. I'm going to do my best. Okay, so let's start with Binyamin and the Keshes. So what we're going to do here is, rather than try and understand each one independently, what I'd like to demonstrate is that the Binyamin, the tribe Binyamin, and the Keshes, they themselves are inherently connected. So it makes our job easier, because we just have to under... Once we 
connect binyamin and keshes, we just have to understand one, you know, one idea instead of two, because we'll see that they're really one and the same. So it, it's really fascinating. You don't have to look too far. There's, there's a pasuk in Divrei Hayamim. This is in the tenth chapter of Divrei Hayamim. There's a pasuk that says they're they're fighting with Shaul. Shaul is the king that preceded uh, David Hamalach, and he's from the tribe of Binyamin. And it says they're fighting with him, and they start shooting arrows at him with a bow. And Rashi points out that there is a great irony in that. He says, because Rashi says, Binyamin were experts at the bow. And he goes on to list like three or four verses that all demonstrate that Binyamin were like super skilled. The tribe of Binyamin were super skilled at using the bow. Archers. All right. I don't, I don't know all these verses by heart, but he lists them, Rashi, and this is in Divrayamim. So here you have, yeah, it's like, you can't get clearer than this, that Binyamin and the Keshes are somehow are just like one and the same. And, and again, this Keshes is referring to the bow and arrow, but we are going to assume that the Keshes, which is the weapon, is the same as the Keshes, which is the rainbow, because you can always assume that when there's a, a similarity in words, and here it's the exact same word, in Hebrew it means that there is uh, an inherent similarity, an inherent connection. Yes. So far so good? Fantastic. Okay. But to understand the connection on a deeper level, the Arizal in Parshas Vayishlach tells us that when Rachel died, right? Rachel died a very tragic death. Rachel is the mother of Binyamin. She has only two children, right? She has Yosef, and now she wants to have one more son, and that would complete uh, the entire structure of the 12 Shvatim. And so she does, she has this 12th child, but she never really gets to have any sort of relationship with him because he dies uh, he, sorry, he's born while while she dies. You know, it's it, her death and his birth are simultaneous with each other. And the term that the the pasuk uses is a vatikash belidita, and she she hardened in in, in her birth. Rabbi Wobi, how would you translate vatikash? And yeah, context? I would say that like like kashef. It was difficult. It was problematic. So, the, so that reason says like this. He says da no ki bekashes zer ampen yesh gimel gavnen. There are three colors in the rainbow, meaning there's three primary colors. Uh, I'm not going to read all of the Kabbalistic terminology. And he says, Shehu binyamin atzadik. And this is binyamin. And that's what it means that Rachel uh, got hardened during the birth. That is the secret of the keshes, meaning the word tekash is the same letters as keshes. Tough. Kuf shin, and then just switch it to kuf shin tough. So here he's saying even more explicitly, Binyamin is the Keshes. Okay, and he is the Keshes, and where did it come from? It came from Rachel. And I think I saw this, maybe it was in the reason, I just didn't uh, I didn't put that into my notes. But basically what the way it worked is that really Rachel had this Keshes, and then when she gave birth to Binyamin, she gave it over to Binyamin and then she died. Because like the, the Keshes was her entire essence, and then it became Binyamin's entire essence. And when she handed it over to Binyamin, she died, and and he was born. So here we have that Binyamin and the Keshes are really very much one and the same. And now we're just gonna have to figure out what this is all about. 
So Benjamin corresponds to the rainbow or the bow, which we're using them interchangeably. They were expert archers, but somehow they were overcome by archers. And this originates in Rachel when she was giving birth to Benjamin. It was Vatakash Balita Oso. She was having a difficulty in his birth, and she ultimately died. But the words Vatakesh is the same letters as Keshes, and somehow that was bequeathed to Benjamin. That's right. So what we have to really figure out here is, what's this Keshes, and how is it Benjamin, and how is it Rachel? So I found a line in the Megala Amukos in Pajas Pinchas. I seem to recall seeing it in the Megala Amukos elsewhere as well. Okay. And that is, he says, these three colors, right? Remember, the reason I'll use that term. These three colors, he said, um, if I go back, he says, these three colors are the three chasadim, and that is somehow Binyamin. So he says what these three colors are, they are the three patriarchs. They are the three avos. So Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, they are the three primary colors that make up for the keshes. Okay, so we're getting somewhere here. This Keshes we've been talking about all this time is actually something very deep and very familiar to us. It is the three patriarchs. It's a combination of all three together make up for the Keshes. But what we now know is that there is a unique connection between the three Avos and Rachel. Now remember, Rachel is really the youngest of all of the four matriarchs. Obviously, they all had some sort of connection to the three patriarchs, being that they were married to them. But it seems like Rachel, there's something special, right? Rachel somehow manages to encompass all three Avos uh, in one fell swoop. She is the holder of the Keshes, and then she bequeaths it to Binyamin. Now, this idea I've actually seen before, even before I, I, I learned anything about the Keshes. And that is because if you look at the month of Er, or we will be, hopefully we'll still be doing the Shurim in the month of Er. The Sfarim tell us that the word Er, Aleph, Yod, Yod, Resh, is the Rashi Tevos for Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Rachel. Okay, very interesting. So there's a month that's actually called, so Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, you know, frequently will go together. Rarely do we see Rachel thrown into the mix. But here in the month of Er, we see her thrown in together with Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. It sounds almost as if she's just, it's like a continuum. She's, she's, she's part of the team, uh, which is fascinating. And I was thinking that, you know, why would it be in the month of ER? So this isn't an ER share, but just very quickly, uh, the, um, the Ramban in the beginning, in, the, in his introduction to Pasha Shemos, tells us that the journey from Mitzrayim to Harsinai was a journey uh, of, of returning back to the Avos, in a sense. He says, when, when we left Mitzrayim, when we got to, we got Matan Torah, and then we built the Mishkan, we were shavu malas avosam. We reached uh, the spiritual level of our, our forefathers, of Avram Yitzchak Yaakov. So if Rachel has this keshes, if Rachel somehow has this ability to connect to the avos, it makes sense that the month of Eor should be her month, because that's the connecting month, right? So we leave Mitzrayim in Nisan, we arrive at Matan Torah in, uh, in Sivan, the month in between, the traveling in between is taking place on Eor. So what, what I would guess is the reason why Rachel is involved here is because Rachel has this power to connect people or to connect her children with the Avos. And that is what is going on. That's the focus of Er, which is why Er is Vashtev's Avon Yaakov Rachel. 
Um, anyways, we're not talking about ER now, but I'm just trying to demonstrate this point, how you actually see uh, that this is a real thing, that Rachel really is somehow a, a continuum, uh, maybe like a bridge or a go-between uh, the, the three Avos and all of Klal Yisrael who descend from them. So far, so good? Absolutely exquisite. I love it. So, um, Keshes, the three, the three colors, the three shades, the three hues of the rainbow, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and somehow that went to Benjamin via Rachel, and it's demonstrated elsewhere in, in, in our philosophy that uh, she serves as the connection between the Jewish people and the patriarchs via Benjamin. Correct. Here's my next question. And that is like, either how or why did that happen? In, in other words, why is Rachel the one who's chosen to be somehow on an equal, on an equal footing with the Avos? Right, it seems pretty random. Why would she be over Sarah, Rivka, or Leah? So I, I tried to look into it. I actually didn't find anything. I have my own theory, and that is based on two different uh, Midrashim, which are almost next-door neighbors with each other. They're like uh, two two paragraphs apart. And I found them in Parshas Vayetze. The first one is that the Medrash Rabbah in Parshas Vayetze, I think it's in chapter 73 of Medrash Rabbah, it quotes a verse in Tehillim. It says, Zohar chasto ve'emunaso leves Yisrael. Hashem remembered his chesed and his faith for the house of Israel. And it says... Zachar Chasto says the Medrash, Ze Avraham. That's referring to Avraham. Okay, he remembered his Chesed, that's Avraham. Ve Emunaso, Ze Yaakov. Okay, so it skips Yitzchak, and I saw all the commentary are bothered by why it's skipping Yitzchak, but that's not our that's not our topic right now. So it skips Yitzchak, it just goes to Yaakov. Ve Emunaso, Ze Yaakov. Okay. The base Yisrael, it says, who's that? Rachel. Okay, so here I'm, I'm seeing it again, unless you have a different explanation for it. I, I seem to be seeing this again. It's like, Avraham, okay, skips Yitzchak, don't know why, Yaakov, and Rachel. Hashem remembered all of them. Again, it seems to be that he's lumping them together. Now, just two uh, midrashim down, it says like this, Vayizkar elo, Elohim es Rachel. This is when Rachel was, she was barren for many years, and then uh, finally Hashem hears her tefillos. And or Hashem accepts her feels, and he uh, he grants her, blesses her with a child. So it says Hashem remembered her. So the marriage says, What did Hashem remember? What did Hashem remember? He remembered Ra- Rachel's silence to her sister. Okay, Rabbi Wobi, do you want to give me a quick rundown of, of what that silence was? Yes. Um, so. Uh, Jacob worked for seven years for the rights to marry to marry uh, Rachel, but he was worried about his wily future father-in-law pulling a fast one, and therefore he gave a special sign to Rachel that she could verify who she is, because he was worried that maybe he would do some sort of chicanery and swap in Leah instead. So he gives her the special passcode, and uh, at uh, the wedding night, indeed, Laban, Lavan, the father-in-law of Jacob, indeed tries to do some chicanery and supplants Rachel with Leah. But ahead of time, as Rachel's about to see this all unfold, she quickly passes off those passcodes to 
to Leah. And indeed, Leah presents herself as if she was Rachel, maybe even unaware of, of all the back, the back story. And Rachel herself, when she sees her husband being taken away, she's silent about it because she doesn't want her sister to be pained. Exactly. So, right, this is a, a sacrifice of epic proportion, one that goes down in history uh, of being the ultimate sacrifice in a sense. Uh, because in her mind, right, in her mind, she was giving up the opportunity to marry Yaakov forever. You know, she didn't know that ultimately she would, she would be able to marry Yaakov as a second wife. So this shtika is an act of, of abject uh, heroism. And that is what Hashem remembered. And it was in that merit that she had, uh, she had a child, right, two children. Okay, so what I would like to do, and th- this is just my own guessing, is that we see that in one measure, it says Hashem remembered Rachel, and it says it in, in like in one the same breath as saying Hashem remembered Yaakov and and and, and Avram, and and the next measure says Hashem remembered Rachel. Why in the merit of her shtika? So what I would like to suggest is that this is really one idea, and that it was because of her shtika, okay, because of this sacrifice, that's why she was able to connect with the Avos. On, on a higher level than anyone else. Okay? Uh, is, is that too bold of an assumption of it, Wilby? No, but you have to finish off with your point. <laughs> uh, I, will, uh, I have okay, your notes so here. I know it. what you have next here. <laughs> I have a lot of things that are coming next. Um, okay, now, you may have noticed by now that the word kashes and the word shasak have the same letters as well. Uh, which is why I, I really think that this is strong or corroborating evidence that the the shasak, the shtika of Rachel, is what allowed her to embody the keshes, which is Avram, Yitzchak, uh, and Yaakov. So we have three words with the same letters just presented differently or scrambled differently. We have uh, Vatakash, she had a difficult time in, in the birth. We have Keshes, which is the rainbow. And we have Shatak, which is silence. And these are all the same letters, just uh, oriented differently. And that all connects Rachel both to the uh, to the antecedents of the Jewish people, to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, and to this whole idea that we're presenting over here, that uh, she is somehow an embodiment or a continuation of the of the patriarchs, and she's going to give that over to Benjamin, and somehow that's going to connect with the month that we're currently in and with Hanukkah. That's right. Now, I have even more evidence. And that is, I remember we said that when Binyamin was born, Rachel gave him something. She gave him the Keshes, and therefore she died. And Binyamin went on to be the, the man of the Keshes, so to speak. But we know there's another Medrash, this one is in the Tanchuma, that there's something else that Rachel gave to Binyamin. So the Medrash Tanchuma tells us that Rachel Tafsa Bishtika, okay, Rachel, the word Tafsa means she grabbed, right? Rachel held on, uh, she, she seized. Um, yeah, Rachel seized the Shtika, uh, the power of Shtika, the power of silence. That's referring to this story with, with Leah. And then it says, Binyamin Binah. Her son also did that. Yodea b'mechiras Yosef. Binyamin knew about the sale of Yosef. And remember, he wasn't involved in the sale of Yosef, so he was innocent. But he knew about it, v'shosek. And he was quiet. So Rachel had the power of shtika. 
And Pinyamin had the power of shtika when it comes to Mechiras Yosef. So what it seems like is, Rachel gave the power of shtika over to Binyamin. And according to us, that is not a coincidence, because Rachel gave the keshes to Binyamin. And the keshes is the same thing as the shtika, it's the same letters, and it's the same concept. It's the power of being quiet, which allowed Rachel to merit the keshes. So she gave them simultaneously over to Binyamin. Okay. But let's take this a step deeper. How and why is it that Rachel's silence allowed her to have this connection? With let let me interrupt you for a second. Um, what about the stones, the 12 stones of the breastplate? Right. So the 12 stones of the breastplate, um, what Rabbi Wolby is alluding to here, is that Binyamin, his is called the Yashve, or I don't. That's how I pronounce it. I don't know. Probably there's probably other ways to say it. But Yashve is Binyamin's, and the Medrash says Yesh Peh Yesh Lo Peh Vishosik. The reason why Binyamin's stone on the Kohen Gadol's Choshen on the breastplate is called a Yashve is because he has a mouth, but he keeps it quiet. Yesh Peh Yesh Peh. He's got a mouth, but he doesn't use it unless unless it's necessary to. And that's Binyamin. So, so Binyamin very much represents the same shtika that his mother does. And according to us, that means he represents the same cash as his mother does. Okay. So basically, we have this idea that Rachel's silence, um, when it came to her sister, you know, not speaking up and revealing her father's trick in, in swapping Leah out for Rachel, that is what allowed her to have this special connection with the Avos. But why? You know, as we know that Mida Kenegin Mida, right? Hashem always rewards, uh, the reward Hashem gives is always in line with the act that was done. And how do we see that playing itself out here? And I think it's, it's, it's very obvious and very powerful. And that is, when Rachel was quiet, when she said, okay, Leah, I'll, I'll let you, I will let you become the wife of Yaakov, and I'm going to stand back and not say anything, what she was doing in her mind was she was giving up her connection with the Avos. Right? Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, the three greatest tzaddikim ever, they founded this wonderful entity called Klal Yisrael. And here Rachel was initially granted an opportunity to be a part of that, right? to be a matriarch of this people. And what she was doing was she was giving it all up. It wasn't just a matter of being quiet. It was being quiet and and sacrificing through her silence. She was sacrificing everything. She was sacrificing the ability to be part of the Jewish people, in a sense. She was sacrificing the, uh, sacrificing the opportunity to be a part of the legacy of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So how does Hashem pay her back? Hashem pays her back by giving her an even stronger connection than anyone else. She, and only she, will be the bearer of the Keshes. Only she will be the one to possess, so to speak, this power of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov combined. And she then went ahead and gave it to her son, Binyamin. So through her shtika, she got the Keshes, and that makes perfect sense. Does it make perfect sense to you, Rabbi Wolby? It absolutely does. She, uh, her challenge, when she had to forfeit those passcodes to her sister, she was, in effect, forfeiting the connection with this illustrious family and dynasty. 
and that is her merit. And not only she didn't lose that, she ultimately ended up with having that advise, so to speak, on that by getting the cashes, by getting the by getting the rainbow. And she went ahead and gave it to Binyamin. And as the Medrash tells us, Binyamin followed suit. He followed his mother's ways. And he too was quiet. Why? Because he did not reveal to Yaakov anything about the Mechiras Yosef, the selling of Yosef. He kept it a secret. Okay, it sounds nice, but it bothers me a little bit. Just a little bit. And that is that it sounds like the Medrash is putting Rachel silence together in the same boat. It's, it's considered like the same level of, of shtika, of sacrifice, Rachel's as Binyamin. So Rachel was silent by not revealing the, the by not revealing to Yaakov what was going on with Leah, thereby giving up her uh, her role as Yaakov's wife. And Binyamin was quiet about the Mechiras Yosef. And I personally don't see how the two are comparable. Uh, Rachel's silence, as we said, was an enormous sacrifice. And Binyamin... He kept quiet. I don't know why he kept quiet. I mean, he didn't tell his father about Mechiras Yosef. I could think of a few reasons. A, maybe he didn't want to cause his father pain. B, maybe he didn't want his brothers to get mad at him. And probably the most obvious is that the brothers actually placed a cherem. Right? The, the Medrash tells us the, the, the brothers forbade anyone from revealing to Yaakov uh, what happened. So much so, this is extremely difficult to understand. But they even, uh, they even issued this prohibition against Hashem, however you understand that, I never understood that. But somehow, even like Hashem wasn't allowed to reveal to Yaakov what happened with the Mechiras Yosef. So, to me, it, it, it's kind of obvious that Binyamin wouldn't. And even if he had a temptation to tell his father about Mechiras Yosef, and he restrained from doing so, why is that such a big deal? Why are we comparing it to Rachel Shtika? Yeah, it seems it seems to be in, incongruent, right? It's not it's not the same thing. It's not it's not commensurate. The, the, this she gave up everything. What did he give up? You know, he did, didn't seem to have much motivation to anyhow reveal about the sale of Joseph. So how are they? How are they the same? How how is this, so to speak, a continuation of the legacy of Rachel? You know, she gave up everything with her silence. He didn't give up really much with his silence, or did he? <laughs> or did he? Exactly. Or did he? So. I have this theory that he did. I have this theory that Binyamin's silence about Mechiras Yosef is actually one and the same. It's basically history repeating itself with Rachel. And that is as follows. We have to understand the Mechiras Yosef a little deeper. Now, Mechiras Yosef is, like I said earlier, it's probably one of the deepest, most difficult parashios in the Torah, what was going on there. It's kind of unfortunate because we learn it as children and, and we just have this like childish per- perception and it stays with us for the rest of our lives. But it's so much more than that. And just to give you like a little bit of a, of a brief insight, I saw in the Sefer Imre Noam, he says that the Mechiras Yosef was a result of the, of the Gid Hanasha. So remember, go, let's go on back earlier. We mentioned how the angel of Esav hit Yaakov in the thigh. And that caused some sort of spiritual damage. Says the Imenon, that that spiritual damage is what allowed for Mechiras Yosef to happen. Okay, how do we understand that? So he actually explains it. I'm going to explain it a, a little bit differently than what he says. The way I understand it is that there's Avram, there's Yitzchak, and then there's Yaakov. But a, a person's physical body is is representative of their of their spiritual essence 
And the way the body is structured is that there is there's a head, there's there's two hands, your, your stomach, the waist, and then the two legs are considered what's called the barami gufa. They're not really a part of the body; they are what carries the body and moves it forward. Yaakov, in, in terms of himself, he really ends at at the waist. Going down, the feet are really his children. They are the Shvatim. What Esav did was he fought with Yaakov. He fought and he fought and he fought and he ultimately succumbed. He failed. So at the end of the night, after a night's worth of this, this incredible battle, Esav says, all right, Yaakov, you got me. I couldn't, I couldn't overcome you, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hit you in your thigh. I'm going to hit you right where your children begin. Meaning, I am going to sever the connection between you and your children. So you can remain intact. You can be spiritually intact. But I'm going to make sure it doesn't continue. I am going to harm the continuity of Yaakov Avinu. Because he did that, and because he actually succeeded in causing some sort of spiritual challenge to the continuity of the Jewish people, that is what allowed for Mechiras Yosef to happen. Because Mechiras Yosef, what was really that? I mean, he sold Yosef away. As if to say, Yosef is no longer part of us. And the tribes who were guilty of that, also in a sense, could have, the danger is that they could have left the fold of, of Yaakov, of the legacy of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. And I believe that that is why they placed this cherem. They said, right, we mentioned earlier, they prohibited anyone from revealing to Yaakov what happened. Nobody, even Hashem, isn't allowed to tell Yaakov what happened. It's a very hard thing to understand, but the way I, the way I would like to suggest is that if Yaakov found out about what happened, then, then somehow Yaakov would have ostracized the Shvatim from being Shvatim. He would have said, you can no longer be a part of this legacy. And the Shvatim said, we can't have that happen. We want to remain the children of Yaakov. We want to remain a part of the legacy of the Jewish people. And so nobody is allowed to tell Yaakov about the Mechiras Yosef. Because if he does, we're finished. I don't have proof to this. This is my own theory. Now, here's the thing. There is one Shevet there was one Shevet who did not participate in Mechiras Yosef. And that Shevet is Binyamin. And that's not a coincidence. It's because Binyamin was the one Shevet who was not alive at the time of the Gidhanasha. When Esav hit Yaakov and he said, your children will no longer continue, Binyamin was not born at that point. Just look in the Parashat, you'll see he's born later. So he was not part of this, of this injury of the spiritual uh, challenge that would make it difficult for Yaakov to continue. And that's why Binyamin was not guilty of Mechiras Yosef. So here's the thing. Here's what Binyamin may have been tempted to do. He would have been tempted to approach Yaakov behind his brother's backs and say, guess what? Guess what, Dad? Here's what happened. They are guilty of Mechiras Yosef. They should be written off. They should be canceled. And I, and only I, should continue the legacy of the Jewish people. Because I'm not guilty. And I'm really the only son that wasn't a part of the whole Gid HaNasha disaster. So I am the true heir to the throne. 
I should be Klal Yisrael. So what Binyamin was tempted, possibly tempted to do, is exactly what Rachel was tempted to do. Rachel wanted to say, no, Leah, get out of here. I am the one who deserves to be part of the Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov heritage. And she didn't. She allowed Leah to take that role. And here Binyamin is doing the exact same thing. As far as he's concerned, he should really be the only one. The ones who are guilty of Mechiris Yosef should be written off. But he doesn't. And he says, I'm going to keep quiet. And I'm going to let my brothers be part of this. I'm going to allow them to be a part of the continuity of Yaakov. Even though there's reason for them not to be. Rabbi Wobi, do you agree with this? It's kind I, of a I, I love it. I love it. And in, in effect, Binyamin could have allowed Esav to triumph. Right? Esav is trying to damage the future continuity of the Jewish people. And to a certain extent, Binyamin could have allowed that to happen by forcing or compelling Yaakov to write off the rest of his siblings and thus making the Gid Hanasha, that damage to the sciatic nerve, the damage to the continuity of the Jewish people or the descendants of Jacob who were alive at the time, to make that permanent. And thus he would be the only continuation of the nation and he would have the entire legacy for himself had he opened his mouth. That's right. Now we find that Binyamin um, was Zochet to something very special. We find that the, the Beis HaMikdash, when it was built, it was divided. So we know that, that the, all of Eretz Yisrael really was divided amongst the 12 tribes. So who got the Beis HaMikdash? So that, that too was divided. Yehuda got some of it. Yehuda got, he got actually kind of the lion's share. He got the Harabayas and the Lishkos and the Azaros. Uh, but that's only in quantity. In quality, uh, Binyamin actually got the more significant part because he got the Heichal and the Kodesh Kachim. So the two holiest parts of the Beis HaMikdash went to, uh, went to Binyamin. Now this I did not see, but again, I wanted to suggest that we know who sanctified the Haral Maria. Like why, why is it that the Beis HaMikdash is even built on Haral Maria? So that, that's very uh, clear in the, in the verses. It's Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Or Avram and Yitzchak uh, through, through the Akedah, which took place on Haral Maria. Yaakov has this awesome revelation in Pashas of Eyetze on the, the Harabayas. And it could be, I want to suggest, that because Binyamin was quiet, like his mother was, because Binyamin was Shasak, and he married the Kesha, so he married this unique connection with the Avos, and therefore, the Beis HaMikdash, or, or at least the, the, the brunt of the Kedusha, the Beis HaMikdash was in his Chelek. Alright, that's my theory. That that's why the Hegel and the Kodesh Kachim are in Binyamin's portion of Eretz Yisrael. Perhaps you could also add that wasn't Mishkan Shiloh uh, also in the tribe of Yosef. Yosef's. Yeah, Yosef. Maybe yeah. Yosef was so, uh, less culpable. Think about where Yosef, Yosef was less exactly. culpable in the sale of Yosef, right? Right, he's less culpable. It's, we, I think we find that there is some culpability in the fact that uh, he shouldn't have been telling his father, you know, the things his brothers were doing. I think, in other words, you're right, Yosef was not fully culpable for the, the selling of himself, um, but Benjamin was a complete non-party. Like, he had absolutely nothing to do with it. But, and, but and, right. and Yehuda tried to mitigate, Judah tried to mitigate the effects of of the brothers' plans, the brothers' nefarious plans for Yosef, and thus the surrounding area around that little strip that's Benjamin's is also for for Judah, right? The rest of the temple is in the tribe of Judah's. Exactly, uh, very good point. All right. Because he did, he, he did attenuate some of the effects of the sale of Joseph. All right, so let's let's start wrapping this up. Let's start bringing this all together. 
the the Medrash tells us, Medrash Rabbah in Mauritius, that one of the things that the Yavanim did was the Yavanim mandated that the Jewish people write on the horn of a shore, of an ox, the words, uh, You have to take the horn of an ox and write that the Jewish people have no chelek, we have no connection with the God of Israel. Okay, seems like a weird thing to do. So I've seen it uh, quoted that the idea of writing it on the horn of a shore, of an ox, is that they were trying to evoke the Avera of the Mechiras Yosef. Why? Because Yosef is compared to an ox. The verse is, Bechor Shor Hadar Lo. Yosef is somehow uh, uh, compared to an ox. And therefore, they said, write on this on the uh, horn of an ox that you have nothing to do with the God of Israel. Okay, so we, we actually are in an advantageous position because we understand why they would want to evoke the sale of Yosef. Well, maybe, well, maybe we don't fully understand it yet, but basically... This sale of Yosef, we we recognize, had a very significant uh, spiritual effect in the continuity of the Jewish people. Okay, but what I haven't heard explained is, what is this, we have no connection with the, with the God of Israel. What does that have to do with Mechiras Yosef? And I think now we understand it very clearly, because as we said earlier, the, the threat that's posed by the selling of Yosef the damage that could have resulted, if not for our hero Binyamin, is that the Jewish people, 10 out of 12, would have complete, been completely ostracized from, uh, from the legacy of Avon, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So what the Yavanim were trying to do is they were trying to say, remember the selling of Yosef, don't forget it, and if you remember it, what's going to happen is that you will no longer have a part, a portion in the God of Israel. Israel is, is Yaakov, right? Yisrael is Yaakov. Specifically, okay, Yisrael. That's what the Yavanim no, were trying to do. Can we add another point? He was named Israel right after the he was struck in the thigh. Oh, that's an excellent point. I should have thought and, of And thus, only Benjamin would have, so to speak, the uh, relationship with, with Israel post that point. Exactly. Rabbi, will be you. I, I, um, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I... I'm a little disappointed in myself. Um, but okay, yeah, excellent point. I think that's 100% true. Okay, now, why is why is it specifically the Yavanim that is launching this campaign? To remember the sale of Yosef, to divorce us from L.O.K. Israel. I mean, why didn't the, the Babylonians do it? Why didn't the, the Mitzram do it? So here's what I think. The, there's four um, there, there's four exiles, right? When we count the four exiles, we don't include Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is considered like the the, the, the super all-encompassing exile. So the four are, there's Bavel. They kicked us out of the, the first temple. Then we got passed down to Parasu Madai. We, we lumped those two together. That's the whole Purim story. It happens in Madai. Then there's Yavan. That's the third. And then there's Edom, which is what we're currently, that's the ghost that we're currently in. So those four correspond to Avram is Babel, Yitzchak is Parasmadai, Yaakov is Yavan, and then the one we're currently in, I've seen different I've seen different takes. It's either David Amalach, which is why David is the Mashiach, or it's Moshe Rabbeinu. Either way, the point is, when we were in Golis Yavan, so the opposing force, so Yavan is on the negative side, on the positive side is Yaakov. Now Yavan knows that 
there's a war between them and the Jewish people. Whoever wins, if the Jewish, Jews win, then Yaakov will continue. They'll move on to the next stage. If the Yavanim win, and they manage to completely wipe out the Jewish people, so then that's it. It ends with Yaakov. Which is exactly what the Gidah was all about. The Gidah was saying, Yaakov, okay, okay, you're intact, you win, but I do not want you to continue. So the Yavanim, by trying to wipe out the Jewish people, were, what they were really doing was the exact same thing as Esau trying to hit Yaakov in the sciatic nerve. You're trying to say, you will not continue. You're not going to move on to Gaulus number four. You're going to, you're going to, we're going to stop you dead in your tracks. Uh, and Yaakov will not continue. And that's why they tried to evoke the Mechiras Yosef. Because the Mechiras Yosef, as we said, is, it's the same thing as the Gedanasha. It's the divorce between Avrius Yaakov and all subsequent generations. So it's specifically the Yavanim who are trying to make an issue out of Mechiras Yosef because they do not want Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov to continue. This is why we mentioned earlier the Yavanim are referred to as Keshes. Because what they're trying to do is they are trying to, they are trying to stop the Keshes. Right? They're, they're a Keshes because they're trying to claim the Avos for themselves. They want to say, no, the Avos are not the patriarchs of the Jewish people. Maybe the Avos are the patriarchs uh, of anyone. We want to have a connection to them. We don't want their spiritual, their spiritual prowess, the, the, the spiritual significance that they introduce to the world. We don't want that to be unique to the Jewish people. So they're called the Keshes because they're challenging the Keshes of, of Klai Yisrael. Okay, so why did they fail? Why were they unsuccessful in knocking the Jewish people away from Avram Yitzchak Yaakov? The answer is because of Binyamin. Binyamin kept Mechiras Yosef a secret. Binyamin doesn't allow Mechiras Yosef to be revealed to the extent that the Jewish people will be expelled from Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. The merit of Binyamin continues. In the merit of Binyamin, we can never evoke Mechiras Yosef to the point where it will have that devastating effect. Through Binyamin, the Jewish people will always remain connected to Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. The, the damage of the Gedanasha will never be complete and the damage of Mechiras Yosef will never be complete. Rabbi Wobi, does this make sense? Yes. Uh, they felt like they had, you know, 11 out of 12 of the, way, uh, you know, of, the way, of, of, of the damage done, the damage to the continuity of the patriarchs, uh, and they were going to, for the final blow, so to speak, or they're trying to, uh, there was one link connecting the nation to their roots, and that is... Benjamin, and that he, he's the stalwart holding up the fort, making sure that the Greeks cannot finish finish off the nation, the nation and their connection to the patriarchs. So what did the Yivonim do? The Yivonim charged into the base of Mekdash, and they went straight for the Heichel. They don't care about the rest of the base of Mekdash. They don't care about Harabais. Harabais is in Yehuda's Chelek. Yehuda's culpable for Mechiris Yosef. The Lishkos, the Azaros, those are all in Yehuda's Chelek. They don't care about that. They care about the Hechel. Because the Hechel is Binyamin. Now, they want to attack it. They want to destroy it. They want to destroy Binyamin because they know that the secret to the Jewish people's success in this war will be Binyamin. And I have proof to this. I didn't see this anywhere, but I think I have really, really strong proof. Because at the end of Masechah Sukkot, 
There's a very strange story that's told about a woman by the name of Miriam Basbilga. Miriam Basbilga was Jewish. She was born to a family of Kohanim. But for whatever reason, she left the fold and she married a Greek. And the Gemara tells us that she entered together with the, with the Yavonim. It's actually Rashi who points out that this is, this is the story. Because the Gemara says she entered the, the Heichel. It doesn't say wedge. So Rashi points out that it's together with the Yavonim in our Hanukkah story. And it says she went straight for the Mizbeach. She kicked it and she said, Lucas, Lucas, wolf, wolf. She said, wolf, wolf, why are you uh, devouring the money of the Jewish people? Okay, what a weird thing to do. But I think it's not, I think it's not weird at all. I think it's actually very deep. Because in Parshas Vayichi, as part of the, when Yaakov is blessing all of his children, Yaakov gives a, a, a blessing to each one of his children, a separate blessing. Each one got its own uh, bracha and its own prophecy. And Binyamin is told, Binyamin ze'ev yichof, ba'boker yochalad. Binyamin, you are a wolf. And you will, uh, but you will eat in the morning. What does that mean? So the, the Targum Uncle says, it means referring to the Mizbeach. Because the Mizbeach is in Binyamin's portion. And it eats in the morning. It eats the Tomit Shal Shachar, the, the sacrifice, the carbon that we bring in the morning. He eats it. It continues the Targum Uncle's, ba'boker yochalad. Ad is referring to the Tomit Shal Bein that he eats in the evening as well. She went straight for the Heichel, straight for the Mizbeach, and she kicks it, and she says, Wolf, wolf! She's clearly alluding to Binyamin. She's yelling at Binyamin for being that Zei, for, for being the Mizbeach, for which the Jewish people are able to bring sacrifices and connect to Hashem. And really, the, the, the Tamed Shal Shachar is really very much associated with Avram Avinu as well. You know, Avram Avinu was, uh, he was the one who established the... Uh, the Shachar's prayer, which is associated with the Talmud Shal Shachar. So through Binyamin and through the Mizbeach, we're able to connect with the Avos, we're able to connect with Hashem. And that's what she was trying to attack. I think that's a really cool, uh, it's a cool evidence to this idea that the, the entering the Heichel was a direct challenge to Binyamin. Okay. Now, in the story of, uh, of the Mechiras Yosef, when Yaakov sends Yosef down to meet his brothers, which was really the beginning of the end, it says that he sent him from the Amek Hebron. He sent him from the depths of Hebron. Rashi asks, the depths of Hebron? Hebron is on a mountain. Depths of Hebron would sound like it's on some sort of valley. So Rashi says, no, the depths of Hebron doesn't mean, uh, you know, geographically. What it means is, from Amuka shall also cover She sent Yosef, he sorry, he sent Yosef from the, the deep Eitzah, the deep solution, or I, I don't know exactly what the word Eitzah means in this context, of Avram, who is buried in Hebron. Okay, and from there the whole story of Mechiras Yosef evolves. Why does it say that? Why does he say he sent him? From the, the solution, or from the Eitzah of the one who is buried in Hebron. Why do we care? I think the answer is, because the Avos are buried in Hebron. Hebron, today, after the Avos died, Hebron is where all of the Avos, uh, that's where they're found. Until Mashiach comes, that's where the Avos are. Sending Yosef from Hebron means he was sending Yosef away from the Avos. Potentially. There was this danger. He's like, I'm sending you now 
away from your grandfather Avram, away from your grandfather Yitzchak. I'm sending you away from Hebron into a very murky, mysterious place. You're going to be sold down to Mitzrayim. And there's this fear, there's this, this potential danger of you disappearing from the face of Jewish history. And that was all part of this Eitzah Amukah that Avram received. That Hashem told Avram, Geri your children will be estranged. That's what it means, your children will be estranged. They're going to they're gonna be estranged from you. They're going to be distanced, disconnected. But as we discussed, that didn't end up happening. Because through Binyamin, the disconnect never became complete. Even though Mechir Yosef could have resulted in a complete disconnect from Hebron and the Avos, we remained connected to Hebron and the Avos through Binyamin. Which, by the way, the word Hebron actually means connection. Hebron, it means Chibur. The idea of Hebron is it's a place of connection. It's a place to connect with the Avos. But you have to foster that relationship. And through Binyamin, we're able to do that. Now, there's something very interesting. The Mishnah in Yuma says that every morning when they brought the Tamid, um, so they, they, they couldn't bring the Tamid until it was light, until it was daytime. So they would say, Has the light reached Hebron yet? And if they said yes, the light has reached Hebron, so they knew they could bring the carbon. Now, that's very strange. I mean, for it to be morning, the light doesn't need to reach Hebron. It just needs to it just needs to appear, the sun needs to rise. So even the Yerushalmi says that it was just a way of, of evoking this chus of Hebron and the Avos. It was a nice way to start the day by mentioning Hebron. But according to us, it's much deeper. Remember, they're bringing a carbon on the Mizbeach of Binyamin. Right? Through Binyamin, we are able to attach ourselves with Hebron, with the Avos. And that's crucial. That's crucial for our whole Avodas to be connected with the Avos. So before bringing a carbon, they wanted to know, is it light in Hebron yet? Are we connected with Hebron? Because that's our Avoda. That is crucial to our, to our Avoda. Let's go back and answer all of our questions. We wanted to know, Kislev is connected with the Keshes, and it's connected with Binyamin. Now we understand it, because the Ivanim were trying to disconnect us. In this month, in Kislev, that's when the whole battle happened. The Ivanim are trying to disconnect us from the Avos. Who saves the day? Binyamin. What does Binyamin allow us to do? Connect with the Avos, connect with the Keshes. Why is the Shem Havaya of the month of Kislev always found in connection with Hebron, right? We said at the beginning of Chaisar, we find it when Avram went to buy the Maris of Achpelah, and we find all the way at the end, the other bookend of, of the Hebron story, so to speak, is when Yaakov is buried there, right? He's the last one to, sorry, is the first one to be buried there, Yaakov was the last one to be buried there. And again, you find that Shem Avaya. According to us, it's so obvious. It's because connecting with Hebron, creating that Chibur to Hebron, is what Kislev is all about. Why is Hanukkah? Why does the Rizal tell us that Hanukkah is a tikkun on the Gid Hanasha? It remedies the harm, the injury dealt to Yaakov's Gid Hanasha. It also remedies the, the harm and the damage of the Mechers Yosef. We understand all of that now because the Gid Hanasha and Mechers Yosef was one and the same. It was all about divorcing the Jewish people from the others. And Hanukkah, Hanukkah heals that. Hanukkah mends that tear. Why did the Yavanim specifically attack the Heichel, we ask? Now we understand it. Because the Heichel was in the portion of Binyamin. 
And they wanted to attack Binyamin because they knew that their success depends on getting rid of Binyamin. And as we know, they failed. And thus we have the Hanukkah story. And that is the end of my share. I hope some of it at least was understandable. I, this is incredible. And I, I have some, uh, some thoughts that I would love to add uh, to this incredible presentation. You know, we talked at the beginning that there's some sort of ambiguity in the word keshes because it does seem to mean two different things, a rainbow and uh, like a bow as in a bow and arrow. So we know the shape of the rainbow and the bow are the same. It's the same kind of semicircle shape. But how does it all connect? I have a theory. So we know that both Ishmael and Asaph, which are the other two parts of this family, they're both archers and they both there's instances where they appear with uh, with with the rainbow we talked about with, with the bow I'm sorry we talked about already um Asaph when his father sends him take your take your bow and we know that Yishmael a few times I mentioned that he had a connection with uh, with the bow uh, when he was about to die his mother went away uh, bow shots away and then he when he went to Egypt he was Rovet Hashas he was uh, he was an archer and that's the word uh Keshes in this context of war and bloodshed. And of course, the Keshes, the same word, is also used in the context of, of peace and of a bris, of a connection between the Almighty and us. So maybe we can suggest, just to, to kind of bring your point home here, that th- there is this battle over the Keshes. And the Keshes is, is this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this, this incredible family, this incredible power. There's a, a, a battle as to what Keshes is going to be present here. They're the Keshes, for sure. But how is that going to be directed? Is it going to be directed in, so to speak, in, in, in militant usages? And that's kind of the way of Esav and Yishmael, and maybe Yavan as well. The Greeks wanted to kind of seize it for that. That would be one way to connect with the Avos. And, of course, the way it ended up working, thanks to, of course, Benjamin, it's, it's, it's one, it's one of, of, of peace. And maybe maybe that's kind of the the, the challenge at hand, is that the, the, there's, there's two Keshes, and there's the battle as to which one is going to gain supremacy. And what, you know, if the other sides would have taken it, it would have been a very different, a different Keshes. Now, I had another interesting uh, kind of idea here. So several times there was efforts to try to destabilize that. Of course, you know, Lavan wanted to do that. He wanted to destabilize this whole system. And the Gidanasha, the angel of Esav wanted to do that. And all that played out with the sale of Joseph. And it almost happened there. But, but of course, it didn't work out. And in the end, Yaakov was spared. Now, didn't he go to Sukos? Yaakov Sukosa, isn't that right after the the, the right Gidanasha? After. Yeah, so that that kind right of after. symbolizes that. And he was Shalem, right? Is that the same pasuk? He was Shalem. Yaakov was Shalem. Sukosa? I don't know if it's the same pasuk, but it's, it's right. It's, it's right, it's right, right there. there. So ya- Yaakov was mended. He was he was healed. In Sukkos, and that's when he died, you told me, right? And we know right. that all the way to the end of Yaakov's life, there was this whole question, does he have any kids that are awry? Is there some sort of leftover of maybe the other sort of Keshes present? And then at the very end on his deathbed, it was Mitaso Shlemo, his, his, his bed was untampered, it was, un, it was undamaged. Now here's the point I wanted to add here. The Gemara in Sota says that during this very long funeral procession, there was another attack of Bnei Yishmael, the Ishmaelites, and Bnei Esav. They came to attack the funeral procession. They weren't giving up even at the very end. And then when they saw, they saw this incredible 
honor and they saw the crown of Yosef on the on the funeral uh, bier, on, on the coffin of Jacob, they all took off their crowns and they put it on the coffin of Jacob as well. And the Gemara says, if I'm not mistaken, that there were 36 crowns, which is 12 from Jacob, 12 from Esav, and 12 from Yishmael. So this is the ultimate cementing of the dominance of the Keshes of Jacob and the way it ultimately worked out, where they finally acceded, so to speak, to to us. They laid down their weapons and they yielded and they submitted. And that's really what happens with the Malach, right? The, you know, the Malach ultimately uh, accedes to to Jacob, to Yaakov, and allows him to uh, to assume uh, supremacy. Those were some of my, my thoughts. No, it's great. And I would just add that there's 36... Um there's 36 lights on Hanukkah. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 36 yeah. lights on Hanukkah. I, mean, I have crazy thoughts about this. I, I, I don't know how far to go, but if you... <laughs> Listen, if, if we're not worried about the podcast, no one's listening anymore. Everyone already turned yeah. up. So you could just, you could just spitball and speculate. Well, I also have another thought. What about Charbi Ubekashti? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's Tefillah. So, that's referring to Tefillah, Rashi says. Uh, sorry, the, uh, they both say Rashi and the Tarot. Yes, yes. But Talusi Mavusi. Yes. So um, that's... So Tefillah is the Avos, right? The Avos from Masaki and Tefillah. That's the Keshes, so to speak, that ultimately endured. Right. right. And that's also Shechem, right? That he took Shechem from which he sent, from which Yosef was sold, right? So that's also a connection. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's right? Because he took the city of Shechem, Becharbi Betashti, right? Yeah. Yeah. He took it, he took it with Tefillah, which was Keshes. So yeah. what's the bottom line for us? They tried to kill oh, us. I have no idea. And we endured, let's eat, like every other festival. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there are lessons, there are practical lessons uh, you could take from it. I was trying to, the one to me, what's very powerful is this idea that Rachel gave up her ability to be part of Rabbi And what did she get? She got it stronger than anyone else. I'll tell you another place where you find it. This is where points this out. That you remember the story of the Maraglim and Shlach. So they, they go to Israel and they say, you know, a bad place. What was going on? So I think it's the Zohar that says, and this is a, a pretty famous idea, that the, the Maraglim, they were leaders of their people. And somehow they knew that as soon as they enter Israel, they will no longer be leaders. They will not be in the Siam. And so they were afraid they didn't want to lose their position. No. Chaim Kanievsky asks a question. He says, you find one of the Maraglim was Kalev. He's one who did not sin. And in Parshas Matos, we see that he is one of the leaders of the Jewish people. He is one of the Nisim that will be taking the Jewish people, leading the, his tribe into Eretz Yisrael. So he says, what's going on? I thought you told me the Baraglam were not allowed to be the, the leaders once they enter Israel. So it's so beautiful. I mean, the answer is so beautiful. It's just this irony. He says, no, exactly that. By giving it up, that's how you get it. You're right. Kalev gave it up. As far as he was concerned, he was giving up his right to become a Nasi. So he became a Nasi, and they all did it. What he thought he it's was forfeiting, a, he ended up uh, actually not only losing yeah. it, but getting, so, gaining so, even more of it. Exactly. I've told you this before, it will be in the name of the stipler, you know, to me, just uh, on a very personal level, how you could implement this idea, um, which is like, he, he says in the context of, of just of desire, of illicit lust, and he says, you want a desire to do something. He, he writes a halakha like, tacha or a bracha, whatever it is you give up, you will get it back. And you'll get it back in a way that's mutter. So you want to you wanna have, engage in a relationship that will give you passion and, and love and whatever. And it's wrong. It's illicit. So you give it up. Hashem will bless you with all of that in a way that's 
mother. So your your marriage will be that much more robust, that much healthier, that much that much that much more. I guess the relationship will be that much stronger because it's you like gave the Gemara of the guy with the tzitzis and the seven layered bed. What's the story? Oh, the one where, where the tzitzis hits him. The tzitzis hits him, but he ultimately marries that lady. He marries that woman. Yeah, she's Megaya. That's right. And as you give it up, you get it back. You get it back in a way that's mother. So I, to me, that's one lesson you could take from it. Well, this was exquisite. This was incredible. You raised the bar for Even learning about the secrets of... Uh, Tevis is a hard... Tevis is a hard <laughs> It's a morbid month. It's a tough month. Well, we have to go through that. There's uh, ups and downs, ebbs and flows in the, in the, in the month. But uh, please, God, I, I hope to do this again next month. Uh, your email address is still botniksm at gmail. Yeah. So, it's all, it's, so everyone send yet. your questions to him because my answer is I don't know. It's way too complicated. But uh, this was incredible. <laughs> I enjoyed this immensely. And uh, I thank you for coming out to the podcast and sharing your incredible wisdom. Uh, I, I call you, you're the wizard of wisdom. The oracle from Cincinnati. <laughs> thank you so much, Rabbi Vonnick. If you want to email me for some reason, my address is rabbiwomjib.com. And I'm in the Torch Center. You're still in Cincinnati. We did this via the magic of Zoom. And I hope all of y'all enjoyed.